invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Joel. We will be completing our series through the book this morning, and then starting next Sunday, we will be looking at five different psalms that are considered to be royal psalms, enthronement psalms, psalms that look toward the day that we have also been looking at here in Joel, when the Lord will reign on David's throne forever and ever over God's kingdom. This morning we will be looking at Joel chapter 3, verses 17 down through 21. If you remember with me throughout our study here this summer, in the book of Joel, the key phrase upon which Joel focuses is the phrase, the day of the Lord. In the first section of the book, from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 27, the day of the Lord is used by Joel to refer to an up and soon coming discipline from the Lord. That the Lord will break through Israel's everyday life and discipline them because their hearts have grown cold toward him. They've not been walking in obedience to him. And even in this word of impending discipline, we still see God's grace. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, the Lord says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And it was a reminder to us that when we too find ourselves cold of heart, not yielded to the Lord in our lives, that we too can come to this same gracious gracious and compassionate Lord. And we too find forgiveness and restoration back into right relationship with Him. As Joel's book continues forward, he continues to refer to the day of the Lord, but almost as if the near reference to the day of the Lord is foreshadowing a future day of the Lord. A future day of the Lord about which other Old Testament prophets foretell. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah all look to this day of the Lord When one day in the future, there will be a period of time where the Lord breaks through. And we talked about the fact that there will be three aspects to that future day of the Lord. It will be a time of judgment on the Gentile nations as a nation for their rejection of the Lord and His people. It does not mean that there will not be people from the nations who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that men from every tribe and tongue will come to faith in Jesus. But as a nation, the Lord will come as judge for their rejection of the Lord and his people. The second aspect of the day of the Lord is a deliverance. A deliverance for the Lord's people Israel as a nation. And finally, the Lord will come in the day of the Lord to initiate his kingdom. 
This morning in chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, we see this second aspect, this restoration of the nation of Israel, this, this coming to deliver his people of Israel, focused as Joel brings this book to a close. And in so doing, we see the Lord saying that there is a future for the nation of Israel. Now that is an important distinction that more and more churches like ours are not stressing or believing. But there are reasons why it is important for us to recognize that there is a future for national Israel. And I'm going to mention three of those reasons this morning. We will flesh these out a little bit later. Three reasons why it's important to recognize that there is a future for national Israel in God's plan. Reason number one, a future for Israel reinforces that God always honors his promises. And we will note this morning some very specific promises that God makes about Israel and Israel's land, the land of promise, as being an eternal possession of God's people Israel. So one reason why it's important to recognize that there's a future for national Israel is that it reinforces the truth that God always honors his promises. Secondly, it reinforces that the Bible is to be interpreted literally. It doesn't mean that there's not figures of speech in the Bible or word pictures, just like in the Song of Solomon when Solomon compares the neck of his beloved to a tower built of stone. Or uh, it's, it's not saying that it's a literal tower, but the Bible needs to be understood just like any piece of literature, that what it says it means. And the fact that there's a literal future for Israel reinforces to us that the Bible is to be interpreted literally. Finally, it's a reminder to the church. The fact that there's a future for the nation of Israel is a reminder to the church that we are not to be prideful about being chosen people of God. And we'll talk briefly about that from Romans chapters 9 through 11. This morning, I'm going to read out loud Joel chapter 3, starting the read in verse 17. You can follow along in your copy of the text. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged for the Lord." dwells in Zion. I have mentioned many times before that as a young person, probably my favorite place to be was my grandpa Benton's farm in Adair County, Iowa. 
And on one morning, my grandfather and I sat on the on a side hill that was just a few yards away from the machine shed. And it was the time of year when we were doing, we were baling hay. And uh, we used to do small square bales of hay and we would uh, put them using the old forks that they used to use for loose hay. We'd put the forks into the bales of hay on a rack, lift it up on a heavy rope. It hit a, uh, ra- a rail system that took it back to the back of the barn. And then the guys who got stuck inside would they'll trip it. I on the outside, my favorite job, would pull the rope. The bales would drop and they would have to stack them. Well, we were getting ready to put hay away and we were sitting on the side hill and my grandpa handed me two pieces of this heavy, heavy rope and said, uh, Steve, splice those together. And I said, Grandpa, I don't know how to splice rope. I don't, how, how am I supposed to splice that together? And he, I will never forget his look. He looked at me with this look of utter disgust and he said to me, What are they teaching you in that school anyway? (laughs) He was a very practical man, and with his third grade education, he uh, he's one of my giants. But he didn't see much help in learning anything that wasn't immediately applicable to life on the farm. If we can't use it here, what good is it? And there's some truth to that. But there also is value in being able to look beyond today and add perspective so that we can interpret today and actually allow the big picture to shape today. And one of the things that's happening in churches today is that more and more churches are using a splice the rope theology, meaning that the major emphasis is just on today. How do I parent my child? How do I be a good husband? How do I uh, live for Jesus at work? Which are all important subjects, but not a real willingness to look beyond today. Not uh, a strong emphasis or even feeling that there's importance in thinking about end times. And the reason why it's so important for us to look at passages like we are looking at today is because the big picture helps shape how we view today. And that's what we want to see this morning as we un, as we open up Joel 3 verses 17 through 21 as the section begins in verses 17 through 18 we see that after the lord defeats these rebellious nations that he will dwell in Jerusalem as a source of blessing to his people notice verse 17 begins with the little word then then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And the reason that that emphasis is there, then you will know, is because of the verses right before it. In verses 9 through 16, remember, we saw last week that the Lord ushers this call to the nations and says, come to do battle 
unbeknownst to the nations, the battle is over before they even come because the Lord's plan is for them to all gather together. But instead of there being battle, he, there will be judgment. And he will bring judgment upon them for how they have treated his people Israel. The Lord's point here to his people Israel in verse 17 is this. Then, then when you see that I brought final judgment to the nations who have abused you, who have hurt you, then you will finally know that I'm your God. You will finally recognize that I dwell in your midst. You will finally recognize that I am faithful to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy. Now remember, when we see that word Zion in the Old Testament, sometimes it refers to the mount upon which the temple is built, was built. Sometimes it refers to the temple itself. Sometimes it refers to the city of Jerusalem. And remember when we came to the end of the book of Deuteronomy when the tabernacle, later the temple, is dedicated, that the Lord's glory shone inside of the temple. And that's hard for us to grasp. But in some way, there was a visible evidence of God's splendor that appeared in that newly dedicated temple. Also remember with me that... Uh, when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, the Lord's presence was with them by cloud by day, by fire by night. Israel knew that God dwelled in their midst. As a New Testament Christian, we have better than God dwelling in our midst, we have God dwelling in each of us by means of the Spirit of God. Here we find the Lord telling them, So often, Israel, you haven't recognized it, but one day you will finally see that I am your God, that I am your Lord, that I dwell in your midst. And then he says, Jerusalem will be holy. It'll be that set-apart city. It's my dwelling place, and strangers will pass through it no more. No more invading armies, armies conquering Judah. And as we will see a little bit later, no one who is unrighteous will be able to dwell there. It will be a place of blessing. And verse 18 fleshes that out. It's, it says there's the, the harvest of grapes will be so great that it will seem like the mountains themselves are dripping grape juice. The, the milk-bearing animals will be so plentiful, the cattle and the goats, that it will seem that the milk's actually flowing out of the hills. It will be a place of great blessing. Jerusalem will be a place of blessing for God's people because God is there. Now the other Old Testament prophets also look forward to this day. For example, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 verses 1 and 2 refers to the Lord dwelling in the midst of his people in Jerusalem. Awake, awake, oh clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You say God will be there in the midst of his people as a source of blessing. Finally experienced by the nation of Israel. My wife Barbara and I are thoroughly enjoying the stage of life which we are now in of being grandpa and grandma. It is so sweet. It is so much better than being a parent. (laughs) We have three little granddaughters and the youngest two who are both there just three weeks apart. They're about six, seven months old and they, they're getting, they're sitting up and they're getting on their hands and knees and rocking and giggling and laughing. And the oldest one who's two is very verbal and she will look at me and say, hi grandpa. And then I'll say, hi Eloise. And then she'll say, hi grandpa. And then I'll say, hi Eloise. Oh, it's just sweet. Well, last January, when number two and number three came along, those of us who are grandparents know the excitement of finally being able to see this little grandbaby. And it finally came to see the third one who was waiting for her grandpa at the hospital. And we happened to be going to see the baby with the other set of grandparents. And we started down the hallway to go see my new little granddaughter. And I turned around and the two grandmas are lagging way behind. Of course, the kids were clear at the end of the hall and they're reading all the other names that people have chosen for babies. And I finally, just out of utter disgust, said, come on, who cares about these other babies? We've got the baby to go see. Let's get with the program. And so I finally got them engaged and to stop worrying so much about all the other names and we get down there and we still can't go in. Why? We've got to scrub. So we had to put on the hand cleanser and all the other cleanser and we put on gowns and we were finally able to step into that room. Why? Because we couldn't enter until we were clean. Now when we look at this verse, these verses, verses 18 and 19, and we read what the prophet Isaiah says, we think, how can there be any hope for being able to live where God lives? How can I possibly be clean? So that I can be with him. Remember, Joel here says in verse 17, strangers will pass through it no more. There'll be no unrighteous people there. Just like Isaiah says in Isaiah 52. Well, the author of Hebrews talks about the people, the nation of Israel and the church and the angels all coming to this Jerusalem to be with God. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. 
And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the author of Hebrews shows that at the moment we put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, we already have an inheritance in the in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem. It's as if our citizenship is already transferred there, even though we are not there yet. And the author of Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there's angels there, the church is there. The spirits of the righteous made perfect, most likely a reference to the Old Testament saints. And Jesus is there, verse 24, and it says that he's the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. How do people live in the presence of a holy God? Well, we have to be made righteous. How does that happen? By the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, by Jesus' death on our behalf. The author of the book of Revelation talks about this city as well. Talks about that one day, that mansion about which Jesus spoke in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. It's my father's house with many rooms. That mansion, that heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down and rest on earth and be our eternal home. And in Revelation chapter 21, we read the Apostle John talking about this, this uh, fact that no unrighteous will be there. And in 21 verses 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then down in verse 27 we read, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How does one live where God lives? No one who is not right with God will do it. No one righteous person. Well, how does one become righteous? By the sprinkled blood of Jesus. By the cross. And just as we talked about at communion, the Bible is very clear that in and of ourselves, we cannot be righteous. We all sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 makes a very strong comment. He says there's none righteous. Not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. He goes down and even talks about the fact that no one even seeks after God. But God made it possible for Jesus' righteousness 
to be credited to us. Through his death and resurrection, for us to be declared right with God through faith. And just as Joel here prophesies that the nation of Israel will one day, as a nation, place their faith in Jesus and once again experience God dwelling in their midst, so also we have the opportunity today to experience being right with God. And if you're here today and you don't know if you are right with God or not, you don't know if your sin is forgiven, I would encourage you after the service is done, one of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders, will be back in our prayer room directly behind you. And you can just go back there and say, hey, can I have some of that material Pastor Steve was talking about? And he'll give you a little booklet. You can take home, look in your own Bible, and find passages of Scripture that help you see that you can know for sure that your sin can be forgiven through faith in Christ and that you for sure can be in right relationship with God. Here, Joel reminds us that there is a future for Israel, that there will be a day that as the Lord says in verse 17, you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. There is a day coming. Now, as Joel brings the book to a close, he also reminds his readers that for those nations who stand in rebellion, they are going to be desolate forever. There's no coming back for those nations who've stood in rebellion to the Lord. The nations will remain desolate because of the violence they've done to Israel. Notice with me verse 19. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Remember, the Egyptians are the ones where held Israel in slavery for 400 years, and then we find that the Edomites, uh, the whole book of Obadiah in the Old Testament is written toward them for their mistreatment of Israel. If you want a good way to remember what Obadiah is about, just think of the little wordplay, Oh, bad Edom. That's what Obadiah is about. Oh, bad Edom. Well, here we find that the Lord says, both Egypt and Edom, wasteland. Those descendants of Esau, the Edomites. Why? Because of the violence they've done to the sons of Judah. Just like we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 13. The Lord judges the nations because they deserve judgment. In fact, down in verse 21, we could translate the verse as the Lord asking the question, Shall I allow the bloodshed by the nations to go unpunished? No, I will not. But in the midst of that, we see verse 20. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem for all generations. Why is it so important to be mindful of the fact that there is a future for national Israel? A couple of years ago at my Rotary Club here in town, we had a speaker come to talk about one of the TV channels. He was like the director of the news. And I was kind of curious about what he would say about 
the evening news, and uh, I finally, I asked a question. I've always been curious why the weather lasts so long. All I want is that little strip that says this is what Monday through Friday is going to look at, look like. So I asked, why, why is there so much weather? And he said, at least from his perspective, that the weather is the most popular thing that they do. Evidently, some of you actually want to know what the barometric pressure was. I don't really care. I just want to know what's going to happen. Now, I do understand the popularity of weather because it affects our everyday lives, doesn't it? Just think about your everyday life and how much we depend on the forecast. I know at our household, the forecast has a lot to do with when we mow. We look at that forecast and say, okay, it's supposed to rain on Thursday, so we better mow tomorrow and then spread it out so that we can mow again on Saturday. Because if you don't get that right, you're going to have to rent a hay rake, a hay rake to come in and, and bale your lawn. So it affects when we mow. It affects where we eat out. I remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Friday night. It's going to be like 72 with a light wind. We get like three of those evenings a year. And and Barbara and I said, oh, this would be a perfect night to sit out on the deck out at Teddy's Barn and Grill in rural Anamosa and just enjoy the cornfields. So I called and made reservations because everyone else is going to think the same thing too. See, it affects where we eat out. It can even affect our walks. Like if it's got a 60% chance of rain, we may say we better stay pretty close to the house. But if there's no chance of rain, we may go walk on the Sackin' Fox Trail along Indian Creek. You see, the weather forecast has a bearing on what we do. And you know what? For a Christian, God's forecast should have a bearing on what we do today as well. And it's important for us to live our lives in light of the big picture, including God's program for the future. Because when we are cognizant of God's program for the future, it should have a bearing on how I view today. Nothing that's happening today is a surprise to God. And to be reminded that there's a future for the nation of Israel is a reminder today of at least three things. Number one, a future for Israel reminds me that God always honors his promises. Remember verse 20 here, Judah will be inhabited forever. Jerusalem for all generations. And then we come to Rev 21 and 20 and 21. What does it talk about that? Jerusalem. That heavenly city where we will live forever and ever. We come down and are reminded as well that it's important to, to uh, be reminded of a, a literal Israel from the aspect that scripture needs to be understood literally. Let's go back to Genesis for a second. Come back to Genesis 12 in that original promise that the Lord made to Abram. To leave his home of his father and mother and go to the land which God would show him. 
And it says here, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. What have we just seen here in Joel 3? You Edomites, you Egyptians, because of the fact that you have done violence to the sons of Judah, you will experience desolation. You see, God's words to Abram in Genesis 12 are literal in Joel 3. We keep going in Genesis and we come to Genesis chapter 17 where those covenant promises made in Genesis 12 are reiterated again and we find in Genesis chapter 17 verses 7 and 8 this promise, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So their God makes a very literal promise about a literal piece of ground that will be Israel's possession forever. And as we see... The prophet Joel talking about a restoration of Israel to the land where they will once again know that God is dwelling in their midst from Jerusalem. We are reminded that we take scripture literally, which helps remind us today when we look around and say, what is going on? That we can take confidence that this nothing's a surprise to God. His plan for the future is intact. He is working his plan. And finally we are reminded. Because of the future. For the nation of Israel. That we as the church are not to be prideful. As recipients of God's grace. And we don't have time to fully develop it today. But when we go to Romans chapter 11. We're reminded in verse 25, that there's been a partial hardening of the nation of Israel. And Paul talks about the fact that one of the reasons why God is working through the church is to make Israel jealous for God working with someone outside of them. And that one day they will come to faith. In fact, verse 26 says that all Israel will be saved. And then Paul talks about the fact that as we as the church have been grafted into his program, don't think that we couldn't be grafted out. That there's no reason for pride here. That God is doing his work and his people in his time. And it's a reminder to us to be gracious about God's grace. To have thankful hearts that he saw in the goodness of his heart to to allow us to be grafted in to his program. That right now, as a church, we are Jew and Gentile together. Just because the nation of Israel has a future does not mean that an Israelite today will be forever with the Lord. They need Jesus just as much as we do. And that's why it's so important for us 
to be praying for the salvation of Jews and Israelites just as much as other people. But we are encouraged in God's word. We are reminded that the Lord will dwell with his people forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of being reminded that you're always faithful to your promises. And that when you make a literal promise, we can expect a literal fulfillment. And that our salvation is by grace. There's no reason for us to be proud that you still have a future for your people, Israel, honoring your promises to them. And we are thankful and grateful that you also chose to do a work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.